Well, as someone who decided pretty close to the beginning of an academic year that I was not going to go back to law school after the first year and instead was going to seminary, I was in a bit of a rush my first day of classes at Methodist Theological School in Ohio. And it occurred to me as I was rushing to get out the door that I was going to seminary and maybe I better take a Bible with me. So I hurriedly grabbed the first Bible I could find and found myself at Methesco shortly later that day in a biblical studies class, Intro to New Testament. As I looked down and saw the other students with their leather-bound Bibles with tabbed indexes and lots of signs of heavy usage, I became rather self-conscious when I realized I'd picked up a children's living Bible <laughs> with a picture of Jesus as the shepherd holding lambs on the front of the cover. I say I felt rather exposed, but at the same time, I was greatly reassured by that image, as I always am, because the Lord, as my shepherd, is my rock and my fortress. And it is maybe the simplest expression of my faith. When we hear these passages from the familiar 23rd Psalm and from the Gospel of John that make allusions to sheep and shepherding, it can be a little bit challenging for us modern folks who mostly are completely disconnected from the world of sheep herding to relate to all that is involved in those images. So I, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about sheep, about shepherds, and um, some of the things that we might be able to hear afresh from these passages if we think about those things. Well, one of the most inaccurate things about that picture of Jesus as the shepherd with the little lamb and the beautiful pastoral scene is that shepherding is a dirty business. And Jesus looks serene and calm and well-rested and quite healthy. But shepherding is actually grueling work. I actually got a book at a used book sale that had photographs and autobiographical accounts of Basque shepherds who traveled, uh, immigrated to this country uh, to provide the necessary skills and expertise to do shepherding out in Idaho and Montana where there are still quite large sheep farms. Shepherding is one of the oldest practices um, and still uh, time-honored things, uh, learning that knowledge that's been passed on for millennia is still helpful to know. And so these uh, Basque sheep herders came and, and uh, they were interviewed and took lots of photographs. It was quite interesting and colorful. And what I found out, among other things, is that shepherds have uh, it, multiple functions. They are healthcare providers, frontline healthcare providers uh, for any kind of injury that happens to an animal when they're oftentimes taking them out to pasture hours away from any other people. They have to be able to help animals that get injured and also for all kinds of birthing situations 
Lambs also often need help being born. And uh, I, I know this is the lambing season right now we've just come through. And during that time when uh, people are helping the lambs be born, it's a 24-7 on-call job. And um, they struggle with exhaustion during that. Um, there's also disease prevention. And simple things like uh, food, uh, helping them know the right grass to get to and not to overeat on one area, but to keep moving on and, and to know what foods to avoid. There are grasses that are poisonous to sheep that can harm them. And there's brackish water that would not be good and happen to know how to get them to still running water, fresh supply. There's protection from predators. It doesn't take much uh, to take out a defenseless sheep. Apparently, even, even dogs can, can do quite a bit of damage to a sheep. So there are long, long hours involved. And there's a need to understand the climate and the environment. And another skill I didn't even think about, but apparently is quite important, is knowing how to train sheepdogs who are absolutely necessary to the work. Uh, one of the shepherds that uh, I was reading about said that if you have 500 sheep, if you don't have any dogs, it would take 200 shepherds to run around and try to keep them all together and, and guide them and lead them. But if you have uh, five or six good sheep dogs, probably uh, 20 shepherds is all it would take to manage uh, 500 sheep. So it's actually a... a, a art, a science, a base of knowledge that's passed on over the generations. And um, more than anything else, the shepherds who spend a lot of time in relative solitude, having to be comfortable with themselves, need to be able to study and understand the characteristics of the animals themselves so that they can recognize their needs, know how to guide and direct them. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, is talking about um, making allusions to good shepherds and bad shepherds. Good shepherds are ones who care for the life of their sheep, and good shepherds are ones who know the sheep well enough and have a relationship with enough them that they follow and understand and obey them. But bad shepherds are ones who really are only interested in using the sheep for their own ends. They're robbers and destroyers. It all sounds pretty abstract in John's gospel, but I think it helps if we understand that it's intimately connected to the story that goes right before. Jesus is talking about shepherds good and bad in order to help people make a connection to the kind of leader that he is, as opposed to those who were also at work. So in chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind. And the whole chapter is a lengthy kind of development of Jesus healing him, and not just healing him of his physical infirmity, but of actually guiding him and coaching him and inviting him to a relationship and an understanding of who Jesus is, who God is, the source of the healing.
So I want to just uh, give you a little bit of a sense about that progression. So there's a man who is blind from birth, and Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and they see the man, and the man, uh, the disciples say to him, Lord, who is it that sinned that this man has been blind from birth? Was it him or was it his parents? Assuming it's one or the other. But Jesus says, neither is true. No one has sinned. He was born blind so that the glory of God might be shown, that the works of God might be done in him. Now, I just want you to think about that for a minute. This man, who has probably lived most of his life under the taint of suspicion of who did something wrong that you are this way, hears from Jesus something he must surely have hoped was true inside. There is nothing of sin that is the cause of this. And then what does he hear again also? That his purpose is to be part of God's display of God's handiwork. Now you can think about, you know, our medical way of thinking and oh, does that make sense or not make sense? But just think for a minute about being someone who has heard a religious leader say the purpose for their being is to become a display of God's handiwork. It could be said of all of us. It is what God wants to say to all of us. Then Jesus scoops down some dirt from the ground spits into it, creates mud, puts it on the man's eyes, and tells him, go to the pool of Siloam and wash there, and you'll regain your sight. The man, to his great credit, decides, yes, I'll do that, and, and he makes his way, well, though he hasn't seen Jesus, and he, he's finding his way there, and he's aware that he's going with mud on his eyes. He makes his way to the pool of Siloam, washes, and indeed he does receive his sight. When he comes back and people ask him what happened, he says, I, I, how did this happen? Who did this? He, he said exactly what Jesus did and said, I don't know who he is, but I do know this is what happened. Well, believe it or not, that work that Jesus did of creating the mud and putting it on the man's eyes happened on the Sabbath, and some people, the religious leaders, were outraged because it was work on the Sabbath. And they thought from work happening on the Sabbath, no good could come because it was against the way God wanted things to work. So they tried to nail the man down and pin him down and, and get him to, to kind of recant his or to perfect his understanding according to their way of thinking. They push on it. Well, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. He says, I don't know whether he's a sinner, but I do know that I was blind, and now I see. They push on his parents and ask them to try to change their understanding. The parents would have nothing to do. They said, go back and talk to the son again. And as the son is talking to the religious leaders, he realizes that they are more interested in justifying their religious position than they are in celebrating the beautiful healing 
that he's experienced, that they are so interested in justifying their religious position, they won't even call his sight a good thing, a gift from a good God. And in fact, they become so frustrated when he says, I, I don't know who he is, but I'll tell you that if he weren't doing something from God, with God's power, he couldn't do this. And they drove him out. Jesus goes and finds him later and invites him to believe that he is the son of man and the source of God's power channeled for his healing. And he says, Lord, I believe. Then Jesus talks about good shepherds and bad shepherds. Good shepherds want healing, life, relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, between God and God's people, with no obstacles coming between and preventing. So shepherds and sheep. Uh, someone I'd been on an Emmaus walk with who uh, was in my share group <clears throat> in a different congregation had been at a, to an Emmaus walk as part of her desire to reconnect with God. She'd grown up in a United Methodist church and, um, and she uh, kind of had some wild years. She uh, got pregnant out of wedlock, had a baby while she was in college and uh, was raising a child on her own and uh, as in the course of all of that happening, she, she really wanted to reconnect with God and started going back to the church that she'd grown up in and uh, didn't necessarily feel all that welcomed by the pastor who didn't seem to connect with her and she had expressed that that was frustrating for her and, and apparently one day she heard him preach on the parable of Jesus and the, the one lamb, the lost lamb who gets away from the flock, and 99 are still there, but one lamb has gone astray, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and seek after the lost lamb and bring it back. And she said, you know, why is it that I just want him to understand that I could be a lost lamb? Well, probably an awful lot of us have times in our lives when we feel like the lost lamb, and yes, we do want to be brought back into the fold, and I'm so glad that she was seeking that relationship. And I just wanted to say, you know what? Just stay patient. Stay in the flock now, you're back, you're in and start to learn what it's like to follow. And it'll happen. It's really easy to turn to God when we have needs, and God is so glad to welcome us. But it's also then important to learn to stay and grow in following, growing in faith. One of the other things that uh, was wonderful about that picture of Jesus with the little lamb, that they're also sheep down. And Jesus collects up the lambs when they need to be tended, but also the sheep need to be learning how to follow, learning how to follow his voice. 
If you have at some point in your life felt like God has been reaching out to you and has welcomed you and you've experienced that love, don't turn away from that when situations in life change. Part of our goal in life, the goal that will help us really grow as people in abundant life is to learn how to follow, is to learn how to follow. In our vision committee, we've talked a little bit about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. And we decided we wanted to put it in some ordinary language. Let me test, let me test this out on you, see what you think. We said disciples walk humbly with Jesus, learning and growing with each step, and sharing that experience with others so we can walk together, creating the world as God intends. What do you think? What does it mean to you to be in the flock, to be a follower of the Good Shepherd? Do you trust that it is for our good, for our benefit? I had a, a German Shepherd. We got him from the pound. Uh, now he's with my son. Love that dog. A uh, little black German Shepherd named Cole. And uh, didn't have him on a leash in our neighborhood because he was so good he'd stay with you. And uh, one day I was serving at Trinity at the time, and I lived right next door to Trinity, and there was this huge church parking lot. It happened to be a Saturday afternoon. It was fairly empty. I went over to the church to t talk with Richard Weiss, who was a business administrator then, and there were little boys out riding their bike in the parking lot. And, of course, I'm walking across with my not huge but still pretty big black dog and um, who loves people and starts going up to them and at first they look kind of frightened but then they start petting him a little bit and and then they're just riding their bikes all over the parking lot. I'm a little bit worried that there's going to be a car come in. I'm, I'm worried that they're going to go off in all kinds of dif different directions. But I start talking to Richard and I actually forget about him. Next thing I know I see my dog, who had never seen a sheep in his life, and I don't know how they learned this. I saw my dog out there herding those boys. I looked, they were riding in a perfect circle all around the parking lot, and my dog was going from one to the other, curving them back in, curving them back in, and they weren't even aware, I'm sure, of what was happening, but there they were, just so happily riding their bikes on a beautiful day with the sheepdog. And I like to remember that image because there's an incredible promise both in the 23rd Psalm and in John 10. I have come that they may have life and have life abundantly. And we might be blessed by trusting that, leaning into it, and growing in light of God's grace with that promise. May it be so.